I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. We think that our memory lives in our brain and there's this other memory that lives in your body. And I had lost all of my brain memory, but in my body, I could feel that before the accident that my body had been tense and kind of like weighed down by things. And when I didn't have memory, I I felt like my body was light in a way that it had never been. And I I just I just sort of knew in that moment that the past has a has an emotional weight and that it lives in our body. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Ingrid Rojas Contreras was born and raised in Colombia, which is the setting for both of her books. The first was a novel based on life called Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which was a New York Times editor's pick. And her latest book, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, is a memoir, or really an excavation of her family history. Contreras is descended from a line of healers with special gifts, to talk to ghosts, to see the future, even to move clouds. These powers were only supposed to pass from man to man, and her maternal grandfather had decided not to share his knowledge with his children, until her mother, a very small child, fell down a well and lost her memory. When she recovered, she had the gifts. Many years later, in her 20s, Contreras had an accident that left her with amnesia, and as she recovered, she was confronted in a new way with her family's history. We got to talk about this book, which is so intricate and compelling and poetic and really just a feat, and the accident that led her to it. So it, it was almost a an announced, pre-announced accident. 
there was this black dress that I got obsessed with when I was living in Chicago. And this was in 2007. And I saw that there was this black Vera Wang gown that was silky and it's luscious and it's just beautiful dress that was on sale and it was very cheap. And I just, I bought it on impulse and I took a photo of it when I was wearing it in the fitting room. And I sent that to my mother telling her, you know, this is a new love of my life. What she replied was, um, this dress has bad energy. Um, stay away from this dress. This, this dress is going to make you into a widow. So I wasn't even married at that time. And, um, by the time that my mother had sent this email back to me, I had already taken the dress to a seamstress who had taken my measurements and it was already being altered. And I was just so in love with this dress that I just didn't want to listen to my mother. Um, and my mother is um, a curandera and she had a psychic business in the attic of our house and she would do things like, uh, you know, help people with with fevers, or she would do exorcisms. Um, she would just help people heal, you know, from physical, emotional, mental disturbances. Um, and so, other, you know, people in my family, myself included, usually listen to her when she comes with one of these warnings. But for some reason, with this dress, I just couldn't just I there wasn't one single cell in me that just wanted to listen to her. So I think it was even like a day later after she sent that email that the seamstress uh, sent a message and they said like your your dress is ready to be picked up. I got on a bike, I just pedaled as fast as I could to get to the seamstress. And on my way there, uh, someone opened their car door into the bike lane and I just crashed straight into the store and I flew in the air and then I hit my head very hard. I wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, and when I rose up from the ground, everything was different and I couldn't at that moment put put my finger on what exactly but, you know, in a, in a few minutes, I would realize that I had lost my memory and that I didn't know who I was or what city I was in or even where I had come from or where I was going. I just had lost everything, every kind of point of reference. We think that our memory lives in our brain. And there's this other memory that lives in your body. Um, and I had lost all of my brain memory. But in my body, I could feel that before the accident that my body had been tense and kind of like weighed down by things. And when I didn't have memory, I, I felt like my body was light in a way that it had never been. And I, I, just, I just sort of knew in that moment that the past has, a, has an emotional weight and that it lives in our body. And I had lost all of that completely. What it felt like was kind of like being a planetary body, you know, like it was, it felt kind of like I was 
I was, you know, a star in space. Like it just felt completely strange and fascinating and joyous. And it it felt like the whole world was just full of possibility. And I was also seeing things for the first time because I, you know, didn't have, you know, from the moment that I rose up from the ground on, I would see sunlight and I would, and I would say to myself, oh my God, that is, that is the sun. And I would be just in this kind of very long, uh, experience of awe and just connection and just love for the world that I was just, you know, meeting as if for the first time. Um, so it just really felt like, um, like the most wonderful, most beautiful feeling. And at that point, you were already a writer. Um, but it, as you were saying before, it really, this felt like a fork in the road moment for your, for your life and then also for your writing. Um, like, what was the process of reconstructing yourself um, or your memory as a, as a person? And then what was the process of reconstructing yourself as a writer or did the writer part of you live, live in your body and, and it, it had, it had stayed? Um, that's such an interesting question. I, I think that it was, it was a very strange, surreal feeling. Um, because even though I, I didn't remember any of the past or any of the formative moments that might've made me who I am, I still had a personality. So I still kind of had um, this kind of very, almost like, you know, I don't even know what to call it, like maybe like a morbid curiosity um, or just uh, not wanting to close my eyes in front of anything and just really wanting to see things. Um, and I, you know, I th- this moment of realizing that I, don't have a sense of who I am or the past or where I come from. I just, I wanted to just have my eyes open for that. And it's almost like when I was experiencing that, I was grateful that I could see what that was like. And I was, I was kind of like grateful to, to be there at this, at this fork in the road where I had lost everything and getting to experience what that is in your body when you have lost all of the, you know, all of the parts of who you say make you who you are. I remember thinking that is so interesting. Like this is such a fascinating thing to happen. And I am so happy. And I I really want to get to the bottom of what it is that we are. When you, you know, when I had lost all of those things, I was still a person. And to me, that was fascinating. And it, you know, part of what I know now to be a curiosity that is tied to being a storyteller and, you know, tied to uh, being in love and with the story of who we are and what makes us and um, how it is that we find our way around the world. Um, I know that as I was writing uh, later and I was writing about that time, that that was just one of the most challenging writing that I've ever had to do because it it felt like all of the emotions and everything that I felt and everything that I was thinking 
were happening in a in a space where there wasn't language um and so trying to put language to, to that to that experience of even just that experience of the strange joy that i felt at you know not having a past um was a very it, i i remember just being only able to write one sentence at a time describing what it was and then not being able to write another sentence that day so i really wrote parts of the book one sentence at a time <laughs> for for you know each day um and that was just the kind of effort that i that i that i had to do it was almost like this unearthing of what that strange moment was like and then sitting for hours trying to figure out a way of you know how do i write about this there's a kind of irony to the fact that there was this total bliss in having lost all your stories and having lost all your memories and having lost sort of all sen- all sense of who you were and where you'd come from and and the result of that experience in some ways is this book which is so much about so devoted to where you come from the stories of where you come from that is this mm-hmm. ode to your your mother and your grandfather and your family, which is a family that is very invested in storytelling as a way of, I don't know, self-constituting. Um, there's a there's a sort of phase of your recovery that you allude to in the book that I wanted to ask you more about, which is um, relearning or re-remembering the stories of your family and f- and falling in love with them and realizing that there was some some element of shame associated with them that you had carried before that you didn't carry anymore. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you what it was like, like what that process was like of recovering the stories, um, but, but coming at them afresh, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, the, the whole process of memories coming back to me was a very painful process and I being with amnesia had been such a joy that the moment that I started to remember where I where I was you know came from that I'm Colombian and that you know my family had left the country because of two kidnapping attempts and I remembered growing up in fear and all of these I you know and then I understood like oh that was the weight in my body that was suddenly gone <laughs> Like, oh, I, yeah, I get it. I, you know, completely understand what the, what the kind of like freedom lightness feeling was about. And it, that it was so painful to, to relearn all of that. And I just remember feeling the whole way, oh, it maybe like amnesia was better than remembering all of this. When it came to, there was one day where I woke up and I remembered just this, I remembered my grandfather's business card, actually. Um, and he was a curandero as well. And people said that he could move clouds. And but the the image that just kind of flashed in my in my mind was this business card and how it said, like, treats you of all kinds of illnesses, diabetes, obesity, sinusitis, cancer, and witchcraft. <laughs> and it just, there was something so funny and wonderful about that. Um, and then I remembered that my mother 
you know, took after him and that they were both healers and that, you know, my grandfather knew a lot of plant medicine and that they had spent their whole lives just listening to people's pain and people's stories and then trying to help them in different ways. And I was remembering like their storytelling. And that was the first memory that like once it came back, it was just like the the memories that just like really made me want to stay in the world that just really, um, you know, I was like, oh, the world is beautiful. You know, like I, so that's what really just allowed me to come full circle. And that's how, you know, I went from having amnesia is, is the best thing that can happen to, I want to know everything about my family and I want to know what are, you know, what are the stories that we, that we have told to each other and what have we kind of inherited from this, from this line? Um, and I just kind of, I, it, it felt like I had revived in this completely new way. And some, some, some time later, I think it was, you know, maybe like a few days later, I had this memory that came back that was, oh, I used to be ashamed of all of the, these stories. Um, and I remembered how my mother had told me, you, you should never share this with anybody um, because, you know, she she would tell me stories about how people had her sexually harassed her when they found out that she was a curandera or how my dad had been you know, they, they had been kind of like disinvited from parties or that my dad, uh, just wouldn't get promotions or like he would be kind of like fired from places. Um, so she was, you know, she was trying to kind of protect me, I guess. Um, and that feeling of shame before had been a foundational pillar of who I was as a person. And this is why amnesia changed me because I had, by the time that this memory of shame came back, I had already formed a completely different relationship to the the stories of my family and who we were. So that when I heard this shame part, I couldn't even make sense of it, or I didn't even know where to put it anymore. And it felt like the most natural thing to just release it. Um, and it's something that I remember intellectually. Like I remember, you know, feeling ashamed, um, but I don't actually feel it at all. Like I can't tap into that emotion. I don't understand that emotion. Um, so amnesia, I, I, I often think, you know, that it's, it's the way that it happened was so magical, but losing that shame is you know then what allowed me to to write this book and it's it's what uh that impulse that I had to just being so hungry for this for the stories of my family and just like really wanting to honor them and give them a place in a book all came from from that experience yeah that was something else I wanted to ask you about which is the full you know there's that that's such a huge turnaround from the sense that uh that that you say you grew up with which is that these stories were sort of something to be hidden maybe for your own safety and that there was some shame around them to feeling like 
you wanted them to be committed to committed to posterity in public. Um, and there's a moment in the book where you tell your mother that you want to write these stories and she's very upset. Um, and I, and I was curious to know a little bit more about your process of deciding you wanted to share this with the world and then how you went about, you know, convincing your mother and treating the parts of that, that felt sensitive to you and to her and, and other members of your family. I had to really think about, uh, the silence that we impose on ourselves or on each other. And I really had to think about what, what was meant by it. So I remember having all of these conversations with my mother around different stories that are in the book and other stories that are not in the book. Um, and just having this, this conversation about who is when you say like, I can't tell this story, who is that silence protecting? Like, who is this for? Um, and I was, I was sharing with her what I saw, which is that when you come from a different culture, there's a way that you are taught to disregard it so that you can assimilate to the majority culture. Um, or there's a way in which that is maybe illegible to other people. And it's maybe more comfortable to, you know, to not put that down um, and to not have to explain yourself. And, you know, there's there's that tension between wanting to be legible and then trying to make yourself legible to people who will never see you. Um, so with with my mother, we just had some, you know, when I I told her, like, what is it? that you're afraid of what, you know, like if I tell other people, like my grandfather was a curandero and, and people saw him move clouds and I, you know, can interview people who saw him move clouds and I can talk about that. What is so scary about that? Like, who is that silence protecting? Was she able to give you an answer that really persuaded you? I mean, I guess not. You wrote the book, but, <laughs> but I'm curious to know how those conversations went, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So she said that she said that it she that other people would think that we that I'm superstitious or that I'm ignorant. Um, and, you know, then I had, you know, I would talk to her about, you know, the history of, of colonization and how that just has been the way that it's that colonization happens where um, there's always a culture that's kind of like lifted up above the others and the other cultures are the evil or like the backward or the savage cultures. Um, so I, I think that once I was able to show her that and um, yeah, I, I guess like show her that, you know, that's not, that wasn't going to happen to me. Uh, I wasn't going to lose my job. Um, nobody was going to, I mean, I guess some people might, but, you know, people that I love and care about are not going to tell me that I'm superstitious. Like they're going to be able to recognize that this is a different worldview um, and that they're, and that they have their own worldview. Um, once I was able to, she agreed with that, then 
then I think that's when I was able to go forward with writing the book. Um, and, you know, we would have conversations about stories about, you know, men in the family and then ask the same questions of who is the silence protecting? Like, are we protecting oppressors uh, from by not telling stories? Are we, you know, are we if are there cases where we're actually protecting victims and then that's a that's a silence that we should keep? Um, so I really kind of I, I really talked to, to her through it. Um, I, I just realized with like the writing of this book that when you're writing nonfiction in the same way that you have to go through a process of I'm going to come out and I'm going to tell this story and I have my reasons and you're going to ha- go through the cycle of resisting the idea and then slowly falling into this is the right thing to do. I had to do that with everyone who's in the book as well. So I, I had conversations with with everyone that's in it. So you must have had to have very persuasive <laughs> ideas and language about why this was a book that really needed to be written. Um, I Did you ever have moments where you needed to go back and reconvince yourself? I'm trying to think back to see if there was a time. No, I think, I, I don't think I did. It was only after, I mean, I think that I had been wanting to write this story pre-amnesia and had convinced myself out of writing the story multiple times um, because I I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to tell it. Anytime that I started to write it, I just kind of felt judged. So I had internalized uh, that kind of like perceived judgment um, from, yeah, from like a Western or like a, a white gaze. Um, and it just stopped me from telling the story. Um, and I, I really felt that I, maybe someday I would get around to writing it, but I just couldn't figure out how to, how to do it justice. But post amnesia, I was so sure. And I was so clear about why I wanted to do it. I just felt that it was, you know, the reason why it's so important is because we had been silenced all of our lives. Um, the fact that I couldn't uh, tell my like friends or like people who love me and I couldn't tell them that this was my background. Um, and once I, you know, when I remembered it all again and I was like, these stories are amazing and wonderful. Who would ever be ashamed of these stories? Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> I just don't get it. Um, and I, I think that the amnesia just gave me this such a large feeling of wonder and awe and just love for these stories that I could then write them from that point of view. And that was the missing element that I didn't have before. And I, I just felt very kind of unshakable about it because I, you know, I remember just, you know, telling my aunts and my mom about the business card and telling them about how funny it is and telling them about how wonderful it is and how 
beautiful it is for both my grandfather and my mother to have this intimate connection with other people. Um, and one of the things that my mother would do when she was uh, treating people is that she would breathe prayers into water and then she would give that water to the person. Um, and, you know, and, and it could be for they were trying to get a job or it could be for like they were suffering from heartbreak um, or, you know, they had depression, for example. So she would make water that was a prayer to address those things and so that things could shift for them and they could, you know, learn to grow through it. And I just, I always thought that that is so beautiful um, to receive that kind of treatment, just to have someone pray these words into water and then give them to you to drink. That is such a beautiful gesture that I even think, you know, whatever you think is happening, that receiving that gesture would be healing. Something that I I really admired in the way that you told the stories of some of the the practices, the healing practices that your mom and your grandfather undertook was that it it really um it really celebrated kind of the beauty of the gesture without needing to or without necessarily engaging too much an argument about what what was or wasn't real in those moments mm-hmm. or or yeah. maybe just complicating the word real <laughs> there's yeah. like some very beautiful sentence about like I forget, and I I won't be able to flip to the page fast enough. But it's something about like it didn't matter if it was something was happening inside my head or outside my head. Mm. Just the the sort of more richly textured understanding of what what gets to be real beyond the kind of like white Western empirical (laughs) um, uh, post Enlightenment era uh, category of the real. Yeah, and you know, I I think as a writer. I think words, you know, words affect us. And maybe as as readers, we also understand that, that that words affect you and they move you and they shift things in you and they change you. Um, So, of course, like if if somebody gifts you words and they gift you prayer, that can also change you. Um, You know, uh, there is this. I, you know, and I grew up with, with that being how we understand the world that, um, you're, you, you know, the way that you relate to someone and the things that you tell them, how those are units of life making. And so they, they are units of healing and they're, they're also units of, you know, destroying you or, you know, making you feel bad. So yeah. Yeah, there's um something else that makes me think of is the the explanation when you're young and your mother is and you're you're sort of asking to be taught by your mother and she explains that you can't simply even if you have the gift to see the future or to see the truth of somebody's um of what's 
what's pl- plaguing somebody, what's making somebody unhappy. You can't just tell them the truth. You need to give them a story and you need to give them a ritual. And that so much of healing is about finding your way into a different story, which has so much resonance with the sort of whole project of this book, which Mm -hmm. seems to be about, I mean, not just storytelling, but also what words can do and, and what like actively crafting a story can do, um, in the way of healing. Yeah. I, I I just love the way that she talked about that and it made a big impression on me as I was growing up. Um, and she was, she was teaching me about, you know, what she knew and, um, this, the way of, of giving people the thing that they needed is not about just giving them, yeah, as you were saying, like the answer, but it's almost about giving them a container or an exercise through which they can practice getting no, getting to know that answer or being in conversation with what it is that they need. Um, so it really is about trying to hold someone's experience and giving them something to do so that they can, uh, you know, walk through the path of whatever is happening in their life. Um, and yeah, it's, I've, I just saw her do that for so many people. And I, I just saw how that just changed people. It just, you know, it just kind of, it just really changed them. Um, and that's why they would come back to her was, was this ability that she had to just be very gentle, you know, this ability that she had of like reading someone and knowing what it is they needed, um, and then being very gentle about it, which I think is also how, how books, you know, work. So I really felt an affinity then as a girl to what she was saying, um, because I was, you know, falling in love with books and just seeing how, you know, you, you read a book and there's in the background of that book, there's something that's being asked. There's like some complicated question that is being asked about, you know, whether it's about loss or love or, you know, how do we learn to let go of each other? You know, like whatever it is that that complicated question, you, it's happening in the background of that story and you get to experience, you know, the, the author trying to think through that question throughout the whole book. And by the end, you kind of land on some place or you land in some truth or some kind of uh, moment that resolves the question, even if it doesn't resolve like the situation in the book. Um, And that's, I think that's what changes us when we read. It's that experience of arriving to a new place and also feeling like we are getting to some kind of truth that we can't otherwise touch. Something that feels really emphasized, I mean, in the conversation we're having, but in the book itself, is that the shape of the of the path you're taking in that story, the shape of the story as you're crafting it, is is everything. Um, and I wanted, and like this is a this is a book that has a really interesting shape because you're 
telling not just your own story, but the story of multiple generations of your family throughout different decades and then through and then woven through there are stories that are much older. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you how you put this together, how you made decisions about the shape that you wanted this narrative to take in the book? I think one of the things that really inspired me was realizing that even though my grandfather died when I was one year old, that in my family, we still talk about him in the present tense. Um, And I I just remembered how we would do that out loud in conversation. And the reason was, was because we all kept dreaming of him. So he would just show up in our dreams. And so that's, that became, uh, for me, you know, creatively this, it just brought about this idea of things happening in this multiplicity of time where someone is dead, but they're also alive to us in a different way. Um, one of the one of the things that happen in the book that's um, I just you know <laughs> couldn't believe when it happened that it was happening was that my two of my aunts and then my mother had a had a dream of my grandfather and they just each dreamt this like on their own that my grandfather came to them and said I want my remains to be disinterred. So when they all told each other, this is what I dreamt, they were surprised to hear that the other person had also dreamt the same thing. Because it happened three times, then we decided that we needed to go back to Colombia and that we needed to follow the instructions that he had given through these dreams. Um, So when I was thinking of the structure of the book, I knew that this journey back to Colombia on this, you know, dream errand that we got was going to be uh, kind of like the the scaffolding of the book that it, you know, travel back to Colombia. We're going to figure out how to disinter my grandfather because um, we went without a plan. And, and then that the, that it would end with, you know, whatever would happen after we unearthed the body or like whatever we found there, like if we could figure out why he had given this instruction. And I also realized that if I was going to do a physical unearthing of a body, that I wanted to do an emotional unearthing and that this emotional unearthing would have to do with the stories um, of my family and like the stories that we tell and the stories that we don't like to tell. Um, and, you know, because I was breaking silence, because my mother had said, you're not supposed to tell these stories. It all felt like, you know, an emotional unearthing. Like I was telling all of the things that I hadn't been allowed to tell until that moment when I wrote them and had convinced everyone that this, that we, sh- our cultures should be celebrated and that our, this, you know, our the the way that our family is should be celebrated. Um, so, I think those two things are really what guided the writing of the book. Um, so there's this there's this very easy structure of the trip and the unearthing, and then 
everything else is a very complicated weaving of, you know, where you might see like my grandfather, I think you see my grandfather alive and then you see him as a, as a skeleton when he's unearthed and then you see him alive again. Um, and everything in the book is a little bit like that, but it, it was playing with that multiplicity of time. Um, and it was, it was, it was kind of, when I was writing it, it was just very associative. Um, I would start to tell a story that I wasn't supposed to tell. And then it would just lead me in all of these different directions. So it was, it was a very kind of um, energizing process where half of the time I, I didn't know where I was going with, with anything, but I just kind of trusted the stories themselves to take me to the place that I needed to go. In the book, you write a little bit about the fact that some of the effects of the accident that caused your amnesia are ongoing. Like the, I forget what it's called, but it's like a topographical issue of... Yeah, yeah. Topographical (laughs) disorientation. Which, would you explain that really quick? I feel like you'll do a better job explaining what that is than I will. Yeah. um, So it's, it's this, sometimes that people are born with this condition and sometimes that happens after a brain injury where the part of your brain that makes mental maps doesn't work very well um, or at all. Um, There's people who, you know, live in their, in their house and then they, their brain can't make a mental map of their apartment, which means that every day they might get up and then get lost going to the bathroom. Because they just can't, you know, that that part of your brain that automatically does that is a little bit offline. Um, so I, I have topographical disorientation that's from a brain injury, and it's not as extreme as that. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm able to navigate places, you know, homes that I'm in well. Um, but it's when it becomes bigger that I, or like if it's an unfamiliar place, um, I'm just not able to make that mental map. And the experience is just kind of being lost all of the time. So I might just, you know, for example, like walk into a grocery store and just go down one aisle. And then if it's, you know, if I want to leave, I might automatically head the wrong direction, like toward the back of a store, as opposed to going to the front. And I think most people, you know, your brain does this magical thing where it just keeps you oriented. And even if you go down whatever number of aisles, your brain seems to know which way is the way out. So for me, that part is is offline. Um, And I'm lost all the time (laughs) for that reason. That seems somehow (laughs) like very poetic also for a person who has such a complex grasp of like narrative topography and mm-hmm. <laughs> intergenerational <laughs> intergenerational narrative topography and like the craft element of a very very um it's just a very carefully constructed and intricate book 
Um, so the idea of being lost all the time, I just was like so moved by. But th- the question I was going to ask you is, um, you know, we we know after reading the book that some of the effects of the both both sort of neurological and and spiritual effects of the experience of amnesia have have lingered. And I'm curious to know if if they have if any of that has been changed by the the completion and and emergence of this book into the world. It feels in some ways mm-hmm. like you're thinking of this book as something that was made possible by that episode. And I'm wondering if the book becoming its own, having its own life in the world has had you re- revisiting any part of um, that story of this whole story with, with new eyes or with the sense of shift. Um, yeah, there's, so one of the things that started to happen after I recovered from amnesia was that I was having these nightly episodes where I would I would wake up in the middle of the night and re-experience amnesia, except instead of it being the joyful uh, you know celebration of life that it had been before, it just it 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 slipped into this nightmarish. Uh, tone where I was just afraid of, afraid of everything. Just, it just became very scary to wake up in the middle of the night and then be in my, in my room and just not recognize anything. Um, so when I started to write the memoir, I did notice that those, uh, experiences of, of waking up into amnesia started to happen less. Um, and last year I only had one, um, one night where that happened. And this year I hadn't had any, any nights where that's happened. Um, so I'm curious to see if I will make it through the year without experience having like the, the regression to amnesia, um, night. Um, but I, I did you know, when I was writing it, it did feel that there was something about putting the story down and even just describing those, those moments of, of waking up and, uh, what happens, you know, when, when this is happening for me, that it, it almost kind of started to, it felt like I was casting something out, just externalizing and like casting it out. Um, yeah. So, but I'm, I'm very kind of, I think that with each of these things, you know, like the the nightly experiences of amnesia or like the, the experience of being lost, that there's a part of me that's always has like just a little bit of awe that that can be a life or that that can be reality. Um, and I, I guess like one of, you know, <laughs> when I think back to... So like having amnesia and just having that sense of curiosity of like, wow, what is this? This is like a wild thing that is happening. I always, I I think that that just seems to be my most kind of like innermost personality trait has to be that. Um, Because, you know, even though the regressions uh, to amnesia are very uncomfortable and terrifying to experience, that I can also have an appreciation for them and I can have curiosity for them 
Um, and I just find them very interesting. And I don't know. I feel like it would be very, I think I would be very comforted to know that that was, that was like at the very, very rock bottom of my personality mm-hmm. was a sense of awe, mm-hmm. you know, when everything else vanishes, even momentarily, you're, you still have awe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It feels very, it makes me feel very strong in a way where I, I feel that, you know, whatever happens that I can, if I can react in this way and I can still have a love for life and the life that I happen to be experiencing, that it just makes me feel like I can, do you know what I mean? Like I can survive anything is what it feels like. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That must, that's (laughs) a, I mean, that's, that's, that's so, um, I mean, that's like very hard earned knowledge, right? (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. but it, that's really valuable knowledge. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful. Um, yeah, I I also think that you know on a on the storytelling level, what I what I think of is that you know there's I just always find the the range of experience to be very surprising. Uh, you know, before the needle kind of like moves further into a stranger place. Um, that's always a surprising thing. And I think that I'm always surprised, like, wow, it can go even further than that. That's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, it's both with like joy and like love and loss in that way. Um, I, I'm just like very kind of admiring of how deeply and profoundly we can feel. And I think at the end, I'm just thankful to to be a person who can feel things and to to be alive generally. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.